Hi, Dr. Deanne Ross here. I'm the Love Theorist. It's really good to have you with me today. I'm wanting to make another um, set of fairly full-on comments, I guess, about how I'm thinking at the moment of what's important to consider in building a theory of love. And for that theory of love to be relevant to you and everybody else who might want to draw on it for some guidance, it needs to be quite nuanced and quite layered and at the same time readily accessible uh, for you in your every every day, every night situation that you might be in. Uh, so ideas are really big slippery things, there's no doubt about it, and I'm still kind of in the realm of ideas, not so much yet getting into what to do with the ideas um, and giving guidance around that. So if you bear with me, what I wanted to do today is bring a focus particularly to the issue or what I call the problematics of violence, because that's why I'm actually interested in love, because of the problematics of violence in our world. And there are so many dimensions to what violence looks like, why it's a problem for and who it's a problem for. It sometimes gets talked about as wicked problems and things like poverty, war, uh, structural unemployment, um, climate change, domestic violence, anything we can think of that is uh, involves violence toward human beings other other beings and mother nature um, can can kind of get bundled up in this term wicked problems and what happened what that's about is we we kind of know what's happening on the planet and in the people's lives around us in our own life but it isn't always clear what to do about it and we can get quite disempowered and quite disheartened in fact what I call broken-hearted in witnessing and being aware of what's happening so a theory of love really needs to delve into what power is all about um, because it's really saying that some types of power are not okay. The types of power that do harm to others, even if not intended, are not. And, and it may be done in the name of love, but it is not love. So the answer is love. The problem is violence. And within both those statements, understanding and knowing how to work with power in all sorts of different situations um, is really crucial um, and can put us in some pretty tough situations, no doubt about it. Okay, so I've got some notes that I was going to draw on because I just find this topic fairly overwhelming to know where to start and where to stop. And I'm also wanting to still keep myself in the picture so it's not like I'm saying the violence is all out there, over there, and nothing to do with me. So I do try and bring it back to myself a little bit. Um, uh, so that's my reason for doing that. So I'm a social worker, and I've been a social worker for many decades now, and one of the original motivating factors for me to become a social worker in my late teens was what I observed when I was a little person growing up in a large family. And I've talked about this before, and just to make a couple of summary comments here, I was very aware of how unfair things were sometimes. We Obviously, there were boys and girls in this family situation, my family situation, and older children, younger children. And um, unfairness was really ran along gender lines. Uh, this is in the 50s and 60s into the 70s when I was growing up um, as to and it played in from a child's perspective in very simplistic terms I guess you know about who who was who was given the most food on the plate at night um, uh, in, 
was assumed that boys needed more food, particularly meat. Um, so, you know, like it, it's interesting what children notice, isn't it? Um, and I've talked also before about the la- lack of love that I experienced um, in how I understand love now. Of course, as a child, I felt cared for and part of a family. And, it, you know, it it was hard to get hold of that idea that I actually it was love that I was really craving and missing. So I didn't really know that lo- that that love or understanding I didn't feel that love, I should say, and understood for who I was. And this was a slowly building awareness um, all in my internal self. There was no one I was talking to about it. There's a lot that happened in my childhood where I started to ask questions. Why doesn't this feel right? Why does this feel so uncomfortable or so unfair or so lonely? (laughs) What's missing here? You know, like I just it just was really puzzling and there was no, I was looking for answers and I couldn't find the answers. So becoming a social worker was born of that desire to, um, f- um, to understand the answer to those kinds of questions of wanting to make the world a better place. Uh, and that's a big concept, isn't it? Make the world a bigger place. And uh, just what that means is obviously different for each of us. There's so many ways we can contribute. Being an academic uh, at this point in my career is very much about a passion for thinking through how ideas can help us in the complexity of and richness of what life is and especially what violence and harm can look like and how we might be able to contribute around that. I, want, I believe ideas are really, really important. Um, uh, they could sit as a, as a kind of unspoken hope or a little, little kind of precious belief that people are inherently good I have that belief I do believe people are inherently good uh, but much can happen uh, that can make it seem that they are not so but I actually believe as a starting ethical point that people are inherently good so this is this is one of those ideas that I've just refused to let go of all my life Um, and I believe those kind of and you will have ideas and beliefs that are really important to you as well that you just hold on to um, like being honest matters you know that you just try really hard in every situation even if it doesn't always work out that you're as honest as you might want to be that you still really believe in honesty okay so I think that these ideas these beliefs that we hold often without even expressing them and maybe sometimes just below our conscious level of acting but still influencing us. I think they help us hold a vision of in the darkest of times of what we what we're trying to achieve, even if we're not achieving it. And it can be kind of a mixed blessing, in fact, because uh, not being able to act on our values and our beliefs can be very painful and disabling as well. So, of course, now I'm here. I am uh, wanting to explore the idea of love, which you know is is a big project, <laughs> um, and it, I don't understand. Well, I do understand why, but it's taken me all my career, all my adult life, to come into a space like an academic space, a professional space, and say love matters. This word is something that should be in the curriculum. We need to be talking with students about this in ways that they can get some guidance for their practice as social workers. <clears throat> and, I th- and I think that's a really interesting point to wonder why it has taken so long to feel that I can speak it. First of all, that I had trouble with even thinking it as a child, then speaking it as an adult and understanding how it can be used as 
as a revolutionary force, I believe, uh, for change in the world. Um, just a quick comment on that word revolutionary. I'm using it in a very particular way um, in terms of peace revolution, the love revolution, and obviously has to always be about nonviolence. When violence is happening, uh, that is not the kind of revolution I'm talking about. But I like the word revolution because it helps keep a big picture sense of the major levels and layers of change we need to undertake to really have a loving world um, and to have no violence and harm being done to the most vulnerable people and animals and landscapes in the world. And I believe this is really important for our survival on the planet. Okay, so, so I'm looking for an expansive, multidimensional way of thinking about love to guide personal and planetary healing and justice work is integral to that. And I think ideas become important to us and then become values and guidelines for our for our behaviours. So love is very much a value of mine. It's actually maybe trumped by nonviolence. I think nonviolence has to be right up there for me as one of the most important values I have. And that that inspires me um, towards justice work to enable nonviolence for others. Um, and of course, even though I say nonviolence is possibly my primary value, it can't, I think it has to be equal first <laughs> with love uh, because to really care and, and be concerned about others, um, we, need to, we need to be coming from a love position. Okay, so this is just an opening comment. So I wanted to um, talk about why I particularly at this time want to be developing a theory of love. And it's because I want to be able to give guidance in the most complex and ethically challenging situations that we could imagine ourselves being in, especially when we're in work situations needing to be of service to others. But not only, I also want to think about it when we are citizens and see violence and injustice happening. I've had, I keep kind of trying to figure what, what is it? What is, if I had to say in a nutshell, what is the most concerning issue on our planet at the t this time? And and I think I think it's pervasive in all types of care for others, including animals and nature. And I think it's about the use of coercion and other forms of violence. And and, and I've obviously commented a little bit on this already. For me, it's particularly distressing and heartbreaking for individuals, whether that's human beings, other animals, or Mother Nature, seeking or needing care wanting to be loved and looked after, hoping for kindness, perhaps needing safety, yet for those beings, those individuals to experience lovelessness or coercion, even trauma and possibly death as part of that care. I find that so disturbing to think about. And the more vulnerable the social group or the species group or the landscape, the more distressed I get when I think about that. Um, and I'm just going to make some other comments now rather than going too deep into that feeling because it is so disabling for me to think too deeply about it, but to know this is what I'm committed to try and understand and contribute around. So we come to the concept of violence um, and 
it's also one of those really complicated concepts and it's multi multi kind of meanings to people and one of the ways i find it helpful to think about it is a spectrum or a continuum of what violence can look like um, from uh, perhaps a slight uh, slight embarrassment that we cause someone in not being careful how we say something in front of other people where there could be a slight loss of face. I think that is really a painful thing for a person and is a form of violence. So I put that up one end of the, the spectrum. Um, and right up the other end would be absolutely things such as war crimes and refusal of refugees, asylum seekers, uh, safe haven. Um, and total destruction of landscapes and waterways uh, to the point where all the living creatures in that space are annihilated as well. And, of course, the mass slaughter of um, some animals for human consumption right up right up that other end and in between of such a range of ways of behaviour. Uh, and what I want to say while we're thinking of violence as a continuum is that sometimes it's a failure to act that can be as much a cause of violence and harm to people and other beings. And so this failure to take responsibility when you're in a position of power can be very insidious because it's not like somebody has acted directly in a situation to cause the harm but have stepped, kind of stepped back, uh, maybe should should have acted or could have acted um, to save that violence from happening. So, so when we think about violence as a spectrum of actions or failure to act, it can it involves force or pressure or attempts to influence or actions that hurt, harm, um, intend to hurt or harm, maybe don't intend to but still do that. Um, it can cause discomfort, fear, loss of personal safety, um, loss of autonomy and control over our own body or landscape, body in a landscape and risk to life. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, isn't it, to get hold of it? And, and um, I think most of us would be able to fairly readily draw on some examples of what we think about when we think about violence, but not to forget the more subtle forms, you know, in the workplace, the gossiping behind people's backs in a way that demeans them or under, undermines other people's confidence in them and their competence in their job. Very damaging, very damaging, known as organisational violence, really serious issue, but you can't feel you can feel it if you're the person being gossiped about uh, but you can't always get your hands on it um, and it, it it's an example of a subtle subtle form of violence that does extreme harm so the language of violence can be I think equated with um, the issue the impact of violence can be linked directly to experiences of brokenheartedness there are many ways the impact of violence can happen, of course. But this this is the concept I've been working with so far. And the, the one of the reasons that I want to stick with that concept of brokenheartedness as explaining the impact of violence is because typically in, in Western societies anyway, the kinds of ways people can act when they have a broken heart can look like they have a mental illness, can feel like they have a mental illness or gets termed that and again mental illness is a complex contested concept it means many things i'm going to lose it use it fairly loosely for now um, but uh, 
but to say that when I'm talking about brokenheartedness, it could involve experiences of being mentally unwell, physically unwell. This this is true, but I actually think one of the problems that happens with once we label people as having a mental illness, we can forget to look carefully at the issues of violence and trauma that have led to the situation where a person is so impacted and so heartbroken. So so I use I use brokenheartedness to try and encompass the kinds of harm and pain that happens to people who might otherwise be given labels of mental illness and its experiences of um, the whole range of emotional, physical, spiritual, social and ex- environmental pain and injury and trauma. So the, so for me, the distress of being brokenhearted is part of the human condition. You know, there's loss and loss and um, harm as part of the life cycle. Uh, uh, however, the kind of focus that I'm wanting to bring bring us to is is not what might be expected in the life cycle when a loved one dies from natural causes, for example. Um, but what I'm interested in is brokenheartedness. And when it is caused by lovelessness and for lovelessness to be present, violence is occurring and 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 it's if lovelessness is is present and violence has occurred, this also can be understood as a type of injustice against a person, and that this is what causes distress and this distress, the experience of violence and lack of love and unfairness that this causes distress. And this is what I'm calling brokenheartedness. So I believe people, other animals and the landscape experience distress and brokenheartedness in a myriad of ways. And just some examples here, um, not, not going to elaborate on them, but just to give a sense of the complexity I'm talking about. And just be careful here, um, it's quite explicit. The mental patient in seclusion is paralysed with deep aloneness and fear. This is someone in a mental health facility um, who's locked and locked in a, a room on their own. Very, very distressing. Um, some would say um, a situation of torture in the name of care. The pig on the cool floor of an abattoir when they're screaming in pain deeply disturbing situations and the clear-filled forest which fills the atmosphere with deep vibrational sighs as it is dying. So some of this violence is done stems so coming back into up off those particular examples which are pretty powerful them how to kind of keep your breath when you think about them just coming back up to a broader comment some of this violence uh, is done in the name of care this is the particularly insidious deeply distressing for me kind of way of thinking about violence Uh, when violence is done in the name of care and is legitimated in society and accepted by the public um, so it's done in the name of care and for the good of society yet serves the actor's self-interest and the elite dominant interests. So I'm just going to leave that broad for a minute. Many tyrannies occur with legal sanctioning and the implicit support of the community and, in fact, can be constructed as necessary to control deviant others for the safety of society. 
going to come to an example about this in a second or two. Thus, I see the use of power to harm and destroy and the failure to acknowledge and address this harm and destruction as the core issue of society. Okay, so I see the use of power in violent ways that causes harm and that destroys and, and, and destroys and devastates people and landscapes and other animals and the failure to acknowledge and address this harm and destruction as the core issue in our society, which comes back to that idea of wicked problems. You know, I have this idea of um, wanting to practice being revolutionary love, and uh, this capacity, though, is is not pre-existing and not something that we are educated to know how to do or maybe even agree that that's what we should be focusing on to have a moral, loving society. But it's a higher-order ethical literacy that requires public education and ongoing personal education and dedication. So I just want to make a note here, and of course the weight of the discussion may already be sitting pretty hard on this, that um, it's important that we're not overly naive about what this capacity, if we're wanting to make a difference in the world, perhaps in this idea of being revolutionary love, that just what that's asking of us is big, <laughs> is big. Um, we might be agreeing and saying to ourselves, yes, yes, I'm wanting to be revolutionary love. I find myself doing that at times and then I take another moment and think. But less well appreciated is how this includes being empathic. This is, is having empathy towards individuals, sometimes ourselves, who may be causing the brokenheartedness, who may be acting violently. And um, we have to place ourselves, I believe, in this in this situation to really Make, be able to make some contribution in it. So this is very troubling to acknowledge that we may be involved in violence ourselves and that at the same time to be empathic toward others and the reasons why violence is happening, understanding how people have acted for that violence to be so is not an easy thing to do and it's not a socially well-demonstrated well way of how to um, love the people who are causing the violence. Um, you only have to think of how Putin is constructed in the media at this time. Um, he is definitely um, seen as a villain. We understand why he is constructed like that. Um, uh, and it doesn't help us know how to act differently. It really closes down the options. So, so this willingness to see violence in ourselves, to check our and change our own behaviours that may be causing harm to others and to have an empathy as a first step toward people who are causing violence. It's not to say that that's all that we need to be doing, um, but we need to build empathy to build connection and rapport, to be able to have the dialogue to do something about who's acting in violent ways. Um, so this willingness to hold people and organisations and companies who are in positions of power and authority who you believe are the causes of the violence and the heartbreak, these are this is a very hard thing to do. This can involve us navigating some of the hardest and most threatening circumstances. 
Certainly in my career, I've had to be willing many times to step into extreme violence and unsafety for myself and other people to try and do something about whatever the issue was um, that was confronting us. The task was to try, usually to try and bring about um, safety in the first instance for whoever was being threatened and, and, and harmed and to try and build dialogue and respect to, to work through what the issues are. In one situation, I had to respond to a community member's concern that one of the neighbours was going to blow up the local alumina refinery management offices. Um, the neighbour had guns and were, was one of many residents who were distraught and outraged by what the company, the mining company, was doing to their town. Many of the residents also felt ripped off with the payment for their property, which they felt forced to sell to the company because of pollution concerns. This was occurring in a very charged environment where the adverse impacts on the community were intensifying in the early 2000s and I was privy to that situation, in fact invited into it to see if I could make, when I was working at a university in, in the area, to make a contribution. And I talk about this at another point. This, of course, is the story of the Arloop in Western Australia and its troubled relationship with our coal world Illumina. Um, and it was first documented in a book by my colleague Martin Bruckner and I under corporate skies. But just for now, and just for that example, that one small example, um, the neighbour was enabled by his community with, with me supporting to avoid responding to the injustices that he he was witnessing and feeling in his own situation and seeing his whole community collapse. So here what we were saying to him is, hey, look, you, you acting violently toward Alcoa actually does not achieve anything and will cause more harm, yeah? Um, this, this is not to go soft on uh, in an ethical sense of the extreme adverse impacts that the mining company was happening, having on the community, which is what I was trying to make a contribution around. Okay, so just... Um, just taking a moment to come up off that particular example of how we can be called upon, um, and sometimes it's expected and sometimes it's not, to make a contribution in really, really um, very challenging, very violent situations. Um, and what was interesting to me, just as just as we're taking a, a, a moment before we move on to another example, is that one of the reasons when when Alcoa came to the university looking for a sociologist, a sociological researcher to help them with the community that was starting to put very, very um, explicit media releases out and affecting Alcoa's reputation, they wanted a um, social researcher to come and see what the problem was with that community and sort it out. Long story, but just, just for the moment, what was really interesting is how none of my other colleagues were willing to touch it. It was already a hot potato in the media, very politically sensitive. Um, and in my naivety, uh, but I'm so glad about this as well, I, I, just, I just had a sense of what was needed right from the start because I had grown up in a mining town myself. I had lived experiences of what that's like for people, different situation to what was happening at Yarloop. But I was, I, I felt that I had some level of affinity, a very primitive, I guess, understanding of what could be going on, but also knew that it was 
a diabolically complex situation. So I was the only person willing to step forward um, to see if I could make a contribution in that situation. Interesting how our life experiences can make us more amenable to what, what I saw as an opportunity, most people saw as, whoa, don't go there, um, <laughs> not good for your career, etc. Okay. So history's given us, I think, some incredible examples of people who resist violence in the most oppressive situations where what Hooks would call a culture of domination um, is reinforced with extreme control that causes dehumanisation and extreme suffering. And I just want to bring the focus to asylum seekers um, across the planet at this time, major complex issue of human rights and survival struggles and um, to bring the situation to Australia in the not so distant past. Um, and in, in fact, how we treat asylum seekers is still, I believe, um, against their basic human right to seek asylum. Anyway, I just want to use this one example of Beirut's Buchani, who you may be aware of because he certainly got some media attention uh, when his book won an award here in Australia. So anyway, um, Buchani was, is a Kurdish uh, journalist and writer who sought refuge as an asylum seeker in Australia. Um, he was taken to an offshore detention centre in Manus Island where he spent six years, six years, as part of his resistance to the suffering he experienced and witnessed towards others, he wrote No Friends But the Mountain, writing from Manus Prison 2019. You may have heard of it. It's a really important book, historical, political book. He won several significant Australian book awards and in 2019, the Guardian newspaper that his book was praised by the award judges. And I'm going to quote what one of the award judges said profoundly important and astonishing act of witness and testament to the life-saving power of writing, of writing as resistance. He wrote the book in secret by sending small segments on WhatsApp to supporters in Australia. It remains a major indictment of the lovelessness and violence by the Australian government. Beirut was not permitted to attend the awards ceremony in person and was subsequently given safe haven in New Zealand. And he's continued to write and publish since that time. I want to keep Bichani's experience in mind now as I make some points about power and then tie it to my theory of love. I don't know how we've got this far in the podcast and not directly talked about power, but it's all about power. <laughs> I, this is needed, this focus on power, because I'm needing to describe it as inseparable from the exercise um, of, of any intention in the world, any action or failure to act. Um, and that the theory of love includes use of power. Um, obviously, uh, what it's arguing is it's only certain types of power that are to be accepted um, within the logic and ethics of a theory of love. As we see in the Buchani, uh, Buchani's um, example, in, in the name of protecting the national interests and presumably for the public good and for what was seen to be good action, good intentions, the Australian government um, uh, enacted uh, with legal um, authority um, offshore detention for people seeking asylum. 
in the name of love and care for the many is very is very consistent this idea um, acting for the good of the whole which is a kind of consequentialist it is a consequentialist theory uh, to act for the good of the whole by protecting Australia's borders harm has been done to a minority status group the harm to asylum seekers is morally unsound I believe this has been argued by many people including Bhutani and highlights to me that love is not necessarily an innocent idea or action Um, the people who enacted the offshore detention policy and the whole apparatus and structure of oppression that happened with that all in their own way believed they were doing the right thing, the good thing. During my social work career, I too took it took me too many years to understand that having goodwill toward clients, the people I was working with, was not sufficient to ensure the best outcome um, for them. Um, this is a this is a kind of segue, obviously, from a major national and international issue, but down to taking my personal responsibility here. I saw myself as a good person and failed to appreciate the authority I wielded in my professional role, even as I used it every day. I also didn't give sufficient credence to how people seeking help would perceive my role, for example, in the public mental health services, um, that I was part of the state system that could lock them up and throw away the key. This was a classic kind of way people were thinking and still think. I was aware of the stigma of mental illness thanks to Goffman's work, his 1986 book, and I had held doggedly on to a fragment of an idea by Schatz, his 1972 book, that mental illness is a myth. These were kind of those little gems of ideas that help influence our practice. But I didn't take this further to place myself in the picture. I was part of the state apparatus of controlling certain groups of people, often against their will with many worse off as a result of the state intervention and hence my actions. In the name of care, actions are taken. People, Some people with mental illness under the Mental Health Act authority that can make it worse off, their situation worse than prior to that action being taken. It's one of the most disturbing understandings I have um, of what violence looks like. Only as I'm doing these podcasts have I gone back and had a look at chats in more detail and I found a quote that I probably could have, I know I could have heeded more in my practice. This is a direct quote of, of Schatz's. Being psychoanalyzed, like any human experience, can itself constitute a form of enslavement and affords, especially in its contemporary institutionalised forms, no guarantee of enhanced self-knowledge and responsibility for patient or therapist. This was Schatz um, in 1972, and I really believe this still is the case now that we really need to take note of what we're doing in the name of love when we're seeking to um, use incredible amounts of authority I just want to um, say a little bit more about how we understand power because how we understand it really affects how we then act, um, as I've just explained in my naive understanding of being a good person and using power, therefore, in a, I th- believed in a fairly benign way, but actually not. So embedded in my arguments and reflections so far, but not sufficiently accented, um, has been the invisible 
often invisible most direct phenomenon is this idea of power. So I'm calling out power here as part of holding myself accountable for my own theorizing that is not power neutral or without effects in the world. So I'm taking this really seriously. I'm trying to really stand in the ideas I'm talking about and own my part in how I view power. For some people, the implications of a theory of love are unwelcome and even threatening. Um, so I will just give one small example very briefly here that um, I believe an implication of a theory of love is that we all need to be vegan. Now, that would that would be perhaps one of the most contentious statements I could make, um, and I'm not making it in a judgmental way at all to anyone who may be listening but if veganism is the practice of nonviolence toward other beings, you can see why, at least at an ethical positioning, a purist ethical positioning, why I would say that. And that would not be a welcome comment. It would be a very, in fact, possibly even distressing um, comment for some people to hear. Um, so I'm really aware that the implications of a theory of love uh, have, have asked a lot, ask a lot of us morally. Um, and there are lots of qualifications that can be made to those kind of comments that I make, This that kind of comment that I've just made. Um, thus, we come to the recognition, I think, that power is a complex, is complex to describe, <laughs> at least as complex and describe, to describe as the idea of love. Now, and one of the reasons why, and Luke's, who's really famous on on this whole topic of love, says power depends on who the person is thinking about power. And he, he described it as being it's value dependent. It depends on your values. This means how we exercise, uh, how power is exercised is related to how power is understood, as my example showed, and who is doing the acting. And, and so it obviously, again, has been, like all complex ideas, has been described in a myriad of ways. But the main, main theme that goes through most all of those um, definitions of power is that it's about some amount of influence, possibly even force, um, usually where that force or influence is used against people and other beings. Our famous writer, sociologist in this space is, of course, Max Weber, and he identified three types of power traditional, charismatic, and rational legal. I just want to speak to these briefly to bring it back to how the type of power I was using in the example in my professional practice. Um, so traditional power is, if you think about it, as what is occupied um, or exercised, sorry, by someone in the prime minister role or the pope or the queen, really obvious examples. Charismatic power is in the individual's personality. And much as I don't want to promote the ideology of this person, Trump would be historically, recently, perhaps even contemporary, in terms of contemporary world politics, a very significant example of a charismatic leader. And we possibly would struggle to see that as a good example, especially if we don't agree with what he is about. But and and it comes to rational legal as the third type of power that Weber was talking about. And this is the one that is particularly um, significant for most of us, I would suggest. Um, 
So rational legal authority is not not possessed by virtue of who I am per se, but it's actually by virtue of the role that I'm in or that you are in. And so for my, my example, um, the Mental Health Act uh, was very, is a very significant piece of legislation for mental health practitioners, and it gives me legal authority to act, no doubt about it. And of course, legislation is based on rational, rational thinking rational arguments of logic and the migration act of 1958 is the legal authority uh, that the australian government used to take people asylum seekers to offshore detention centers and uh, constrain them there basically sometimes for many years Okay, so power can, this is a slippery concept, concept of power, um, can also be operating in a situation as an implicit or direct threat of harmful consequences if certain actions occur or don't occur. See how hard it is to talk about, keep needing to qualify. Power is always present in any interaction. Now, this is, this is coming down to the lived experience of power. It's always present in any interaction from the intimate personal realm to the public realm. And, of course, we can't get very far talking about power before we come to Michel Foucault. All actions and non-actions are imbued with power. Very important idea of Foucault's. And just as trying to get a hold of how that can look, how our actions can be understood, the idea of discourses comes here. And this is about the collectivities of ways that we make sense of the world and act and, and the language that we use. And, of course, what we're interested here in terms of power is um, the idea of what is often talked about as the influence of dominant discourses in society. These are the dominant ideas uh, that power elites of society use to normalise what is seen to be truth. And this matters so that truth was being promoted at a certain flashpoint in Australia's political story, that asylum seekers who come by boat to Australia are dangerous and threaten national security. This was promoted as a truth in many ways and followed up by action that had rational legal authority. Very profound use of power and the implications. And the dominant discourse was not necessarily how everybody understood it, but in the public realm, that is what held sway. This is about how the power to influence and achieve goals and certain outcomes is closely understood, closely tied to how power and ideas are understood by that example I just gave you. And of course, C. Wright Mills is another famous sociologist. And in 1956, um, he was writing about the power elites of society and how their ideas are the dominant ideas. And of course, way back, of course, Marx. Um, shout out to Marx, but I'm um, very influenced by Marx, but I'm just not. Um, spending time in the minute talking about Marx except to acknowledge him coming to see Wright Mills again um, and one of the one of the comments and I thought really got hold of this idea of dominant discourses and who who it serves um, he, he says in 1956 families churches and schools adapt to modern life governments armies and corporations shape it now we might want to have we could possibly have a very robust conversation about that, but I think it's really interesting to think about what are the social structures um, in our society that hold power, and they all do in different ways, but we, what are the dominant ones that really hold sway um, in matters of 
the public interest and you only have to think of the military to know how powerful they can be, especially in circumstances of military coups, but not only. Okay, so the elites, of course, now look, the key point is the elites have the resources to employ and to promote ideas that serve their purposes. And Foucault describes these resources as mechanisms of control and surveillance in places such as prisons and mental hospitals, but not only in those places. And, of course, we've been talking about offshore detention centres. The aim is about the use of power, what Foucault talks about as disciplinary power, because it disciplines and controls the objects of its and compliance of undesirable social groups. These are the objects of the intention of the powerful who are undesirable, who, who are, have less value, who may be threatening to the power elites. This is, this is a big, big moment of sociological theory, but I just think it's really important to hold this um, sociological and political perspective of power, see how it looks on the public stage and then know how to interpret into the interpersonal um, space and local situations that we're in and also how we use our own power toward ourselves um, often talked about as self-esteem and confidence to act in the world so one of the one of the contributions I think Foucault had on power was to really try and challenge this idea that power is a zero sum phenomenon. Um, and what I mean by this is where someone or someone or an organization or an institution has it, like the government has all the power and others don't have it, the public don't have any power, those kind of dualistic ideas. Um, and I think that idea of that, that zero-sum notion of power is very dominant um, and there are good reasons for it because it can actually feel like it in the lived experience that when you're being uh, exposed to violence and domination, it can feel like you have no power and it could be that you have very little in fact and it could be that your life is at extreme risk. Yeah. Okay. This in itself, nevertheless, is part of the dominant ideas to make it look as though people don't have power, um, even, when, and even when there's that lived experience of that being true as well. And it's part of how to keep people feeling fatalistic and defeated and not challenging what's going on. And Foucault talked about that experience of feeling challenging, challenged and defeated as being docile bodies. Yeah. Um, so. You know, like, I just, my makes your head hurt, doesn't it, trying to think about this and what this means for a theory of love. One of the most interesting concepts um, that helps me keep hold of the sometimes invisible nature of power, but nonetheless it's still very potent, um, is one of um, the ideas by Dorothy Smith, one of my favourite social, social theorists. Um, and in 1990, she talks about indirect forms of power. These are kind of the power you can't get your hands on, but you know it's having an effect on you. <laughs> Think Centrelink um, rules for payments. You can't get your hands on that set of rules but it absolutely affects you the moment you try and make an application for a benefit of some kind so she talks about these ex, um, indirect forms of power that are often located in legislation but not only as extra local relations of ruling um, and it's for some reason like you know when you read something that something 
It really stays in your mind. This has stayed in my mind now for, gosh, is that 30 years? Oh, my goodness, since I read that idea. And it's been really helpful to not be naive um, about how power operates um, and who 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 is gaining from that and who who it's serving. And and so when when Smith is talking about extra local relations of ruling, she's trying to accent that power is laid throughout society and is far from a benign force, especially in unequal societies and relationships, which is of course what I'm interested in. Whenever power is considered, it needs to be also tied to the possibility of resistance to the exercise of power. This is an idea from Foucault. It's a really crucial idea. We come back to it in later podcasts when we ask people, uh, we interview some a whole lot of amazing people on what love means for them in their practice and their lives. We're at the very least we can do in situations where we feel very powerless to make a difference and we can see injustices and tyrannies happen is at least in some part of our mind refuse to accept it as okay you may not feel safe to speak it may not feel safe or able to act um, but to refuse to accept that the way Australia has treated asylum seekers and continues to treat asylum seekers often is not okay is a thought that we need to hold on to and, when possible, act around. So I find that a really, this idea of resistance incredibly important um, and, we're, and just for the moment to get hold of the idea that wherever power, especially dominant power that is used to harm and hurt and surveil people is being used, the ability of the party on the wrong side, let's say, the the receiving side of that power, uh, dominant power, knowing how to resist and refuse to accept that as okay, as morally okay or okay in any way, is the least that we can do. And I would say that's part of our baseline moral obligation in situations of violence, to find some way of resisting it. Um, So against terrible odds, just to link this back to Buchani, against terrible odds, Buchani, and very life-threatening situation, Buchani resisted the surveillance and control of the elites in Brisbane, sorry, in Brisbane, in Canberra, (laughs) Um, and the managers in the offshore detention centres, first of all, by surviving, that's an incredible act of resistance, and then by writing a protest book of historical significance and getting it out there into the media and and, um, speaking back to the Australian people about the tyrannies that were happening and how he he actually compares Australia's um, behaviour around offshore detention as as a type of, or definitely the the detention centres at prisons, and that it was absolutely illegal and an extreme form of violence and torture. So theory of love then has to be relevant to guide responses to experiences such as Buchani's and to situations for practitioners like myself in the way in the name of care, we may be intervening in unwelcome ways and using force and legal control against people um, and any other situation of violence and oppression. If love is the answer, its form is far from clear. When its absence is related to violence and injustice, it is a very troubling moral challenge that needs to be addressed by society. 
As Gandhi said, the moral fibre of a society is to be judged by the quality of life of its most vulnerable members. So for me, issues of lovelessness, violence and injustice are issues of the use of power or the failure of the use of power by the responsible actors and institutions. When power is used or withheld and the impact is harm, trauma, even death, such as abuse of human rights, exploitation of other animals, degradation of nature, this power is the antithesis of love as power. When the Australian government legislated the Border Force Act in 2015, it was attempting to silence concerned parties who were bearing witness to the human suffering on Manus Island and other offshore detention centres. The threat in the legislation was that people speaking out would be acting illegally and dealt with under the provisions of the Act. This was resisted in a range of ways, and one of the most impressive was by a group of people called Doctors for Refugees, who spoke out against the Act, arguing for the rights of detainees to receive medical care and to be able to speak if there were concerns about that not happening. The government, interestingly, despite the threat of the legislation, did not invoke the Act against them and subsequently, under public pressure, removed that stricture uh, for remove that stricture for many, but not all the parties. So what happened is that doctors can now speak publicly if they have concerns about what's happening in detention around people's medical well-being. Uh, but interestingly, the, the legislation did not extend to social workers who remain unable legally to speak out about what they might witness in offshore detention centres. So uh, an implication of the love theory is that immoral legislation needs to be resisted in every way possible. And also, as the Doctors for Refugees showed, doing so can be successful. And as Buccini showed, against the odds, the silence, the culture silence that can happen around tyrannies of justice um, can be broken through incredible acts of bravery and through the political resistance in the form of writing. Resistance against harmful use of power is, I believe, one of the most impressive forms of power, of love. And always, though, it has to be nonviolent. So just as some concluding comments, because, you know, this talking about power and violence is all pretty full on, isn't it? Um, what I've been suggesting so far, basically, is that the absence of love can often involve violence and be experienced as harm in our bodies, in landscapes and other animals. What I'm interested in is how love can make the difference. I absolutely believe that. I refuse to let go of that. Um, and how love can be a guiding ethic and force in our daily lives in the tradition that, of Gandhi, for example, to bring about a more peaceful, loving world. I think the idea of trauma, which I talked about in a previous podcast, helps us translate across multiple situations what the experience of violence can look and feel like. And trauma in, gets embedded in, in, in our whole bodies and relationships, affects everything. Um, but I have talked about it most succinctly in this idea of brokenheartedness when harm has been done. So brokenheartedness is where emotional aspect of our heart has become deeply harmed by the violence or unfairness done to us or that we're witnessing done to others, including other animals in nature. 
I've had to really face that I need to struggle with this notion of violence and what it means. And while I'm saying it's the opposite to love, I'm not that comfortable with that, but I actually do not equate it with love, that's for sure. But actually also believe that we have to know how to understand violence and function in violent situations to come into them to engage the people and institutions and policies and legislation involved to find ways to make a contribution now not everybody needs to be directly involved in situations of extreme violence um, but some people do it's kind of like inside the system we've got to be inside where there's no outside there's no outside society, there's no outside the system and, and just where we locate ourselves um, is really important. And it may be that our role at times can be allies to others who are doing the frontline work yeah, um, of trying to address direct, more directly the impact of violence. Okay, so look, I, I just really appreciate that you've taken the time. If you're still listening to this podcast, you know, it's been a fairly heavy duty one and it brings pretty close to, I think, the first set of five podcasts of the main points I want to make about the love theory, the main guiding ethics, the main guiding principle ideas. Um, and very shortly, we'll be moving into a series of interviews with really interesting, amazing people who are using the idea of love in their practice in life. And I think this will help us really um, tease out and get a much firmer um, grip and appreciation of, grip on and appreciation of the value of uh, a theory of love for um, being able to contribute in the world. Okay, thank you so much. Bye now.